We're going to go, we're calling this series The Gift Only You Can Give because a lot of times, I don't know about you, but there are people that I know intimately and there are people that I just know. And it's amazing, you can tell a lot of the difference on the people that I know intimately and the people that I just know, a lot of times, honestly, by the gifts they give. You know, um, when me and Jennifer first got married, although we, we got married quick and we got married fast, we had only dated, you know, three months, and then we were engaged three months when we were married. The first Christmas we had was six months into our marriage, and she did. The first Christmas, she bought me a bunch of um, khaki pants and straight-colored button-up shirts. And her heart was completely in the right place. But if you know me at all, that is as far from me as you could possibly... I don't know if anybody has ever... And the, probably the only way you'll catch me in something like that is in my casket. And they put me in it when I wasn't aware. Because I don't wear khakis. I just don't feel comfortable in them. I mean, it's, it's like fleas all over me. <laughs> and, so I, and I don't wear those kind of button-up shirts. And so when Jimmy and Jennifer first got married, that was what the style she came out of. So she's like, ooh, obviously... That's what he'll like. And I'd open them up, and she still tells the story. She remembers the first Christmas. Well, let me tell you what I got her. It's even worse. All right, um, the first Christmas, she liked running. And so she wanted a good pair of running shoes. Well, we'd just gotten married, and we didn't know each other greatly well yet. We were still learning it. And so she needed a pair of running shoes. So I walked in Bells one day. That's when Camden had a Bells. And... When I walked in, I was looking for a pair of running shoes, and I'm not a runner, so I don't know anything about those things. So I was looking for the prettiest ones, and um, I finally found a pair in her size, and I went up to ring them out, and they were about $70 shoes, and when they rang them up, they came up to about $3. I was like, whoa, that's a good sale. And this is what the lady there told me. She said, no, there's a glitch in our system nationally. And I said, so are you going to sell them to me for that? And she said, yeah. She said, until they get it fixed, we have to sell it for whatever it rings up for. So I ran back over to the shoe department, and I got every single pair of running shoes in the size of seven as I could get. All right? And so I got her every brand, every style, every color. And I come out with about 25 pairs of running shoes and spent still under like a hundred bucks. Then I called all my friends and my family and said, y'all got to get up here. And they were all coming up here to get shoes too. But so when I gift wrapped all the shoes, I gift wrapped 25 plus boxes. They were all the exact same size and put them all over the tree. thought this would be awesome. She could open up and every day of the week she could pick out a different shoe. After about the 10th box of shoes she opened, the same expression I had on my face when I opened and found khaki pants, she had on her face, uh, she knew she had about... 15 more boxes of shoes open, right? So, long story short, it was fine and any other, but we didn't know each other. So our gifts didn't really connect, is what I'm trying to say. Our gifts didn't reflect our relationship. You know, Christmas, they always teach you, is not about the gift giving. But I want to tell you something. It is. It is. Christmas started off in the very beginning where it said... For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, we put monetary value on gifts because that's what we do. But the best gifts don't have monetary value on them. The best gifts are gifts, honestly, that someone can use. It took me a long time to learn that because I grew up loving to play PlayStation. I loved 
grew up lo- learning to love um, you know, video games and electronics and things like that. And so when me and Jennifer got married, she never gave me a gift that was fun game gift, if that makes any sense. I remember I'd never been given up to that point uh, a gift of a belt. Never been given a belt. <laughs> and I remember the first year Jennifer gave me a belt. Well, i got to be honest with you. Out of everything I got that year, I used that belt more than anything I ever used before. Because it was something that was actually usable. Saying all that to say this, this year I want to go into Christmas because most people don't realize that they have something that God deeply desires, but not even really deeply desires, God desperately needs. And so over the next couple weeks, I'm going to try to do my best to lay this out in a principle that you can maybe grab hold to, because a lot of times you go into church thinking, what is it at Christmas season that I can give God? And I want to talk about three things in this season that it's a gift that only you can give, but God desperately needs them. It's not that He just wants them, but He desperately needs them. I'm going to jump into a story real quick here and read here in Matthew chapter 2. It's what we're going to build out of for the next couple weeks. But um, I'm just going to read a couple scriptures, then we're going to jump into what you're going to think may be going on a long way around this topic, but it will come back around, I promise. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came and came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now I'm going to jump down because we may hit some of this the rest of the time, but I want to talk about these wise men. And these gifts they brought. Here in verse 9 it says, And when the king, when they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before him, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And then they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I want to talk about the gifts that these guys gave. In a different way, I don't know if you have done much biblical study on Christmas time and seasons, but the three gifts these wise men gave, they all represented something spiritual and supernatural. But today I really want to talk more about the practical side of these gifts versus the spiritual. The spiritual side of the gifts were they presented Jesus with the gold, which represented a king of kings, an earthly king, a, a, a king on this earth, the king of the Jews. They, one offered to him frankincense, which represented deity. That not only was he an earthly king of the Jews, but he was also a god. He was not a god, the god. He was God, the Christ, the Messiah had come. Now, the last one was myrrh, which was, is used in embalming fluids. It's used to anoint dead bodies because of what his purpose was. Now, if you, we may go deeper over the next couple of weeks over these three topics, but I really want to talk about what these three gifts really did. I understand the significance, and I understand the, the shadow, and I understand the, the prophetic, and I understand the meaning of these gifts. But I want to read verse 13 here, and it said this. It says, Now 
that they had departed, after the white men had departed, said, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the child to destroy him. Now, laying out the story here at Christmas, we understand the meager means that Mary and Joseph had. I love the fact how the Christmas story lays out. And there's so many different directions you can go in with the Christmas story. But I love the fact that God didn't pick people that were that you would look at and think they're winners and you, should, you can understand why God chose them. I love the fact that God chose people not off of what they had, what they owned, what family they were born into, but he chose people by the way they lived. I love that. God uses people that choose to live the way that he asked people to live. And so he chose Mary and Joseph, and they came from meager means, and Joseph was a carpenter, and Mary, you know, she was young, and when they got married, the Bible says they came to Jerusalem, and they didn't have, um, she was pregnant with child, and they didn't have obviously enough money to bribe or pay or to get a big room, so when they came to the end, there was no room, and they were they were put into the manger and I love the the sense and the symbolism of the story that Jesus the baby God coming to this earth was born into one of the darkest hardest worst situations you could possibly be born into he was born into a manger an animal play, an animal housing place I love this because God is always looking to reach into my dirtiest, my darkest, my hardest situations and put Jesus right in the middle of them and turn a place that may have been used in past to slaughter and kill animals or feed animals and it's not to make it something now that people travel all over the world to see and to see that place that God used in a great and mighty way. I love it. You guys probably just saw the manger. I can't imagine walking in there and seeing the manger. But that place is no longer dirty and nasty. That place is no longer smelly, but people come from all over the world, pay thousands of dollars just to look at where God decided to turn the circumstances around. I love that story of Christmas. But what I want to talk about the story of Christmas this year is this. That the way everything in this story foretold shows that there was a plan of God at work then and still yet now. God has a plan for your life. The story of Christmas tells you that when God makes a plan, He keeps His plan. The story of Christmas says this, when God makes a promise, He keeps His promise. No matter how hard the circumstances and no matter how hard the situation. God said it since Adam and Eve fell. God said that he was going to redeem and he did it in Christmas. At Christmas through the Christmas story. Sending Jesus. I love the story of Christmas. It says he keeps his promises. But I love the fact that Christmas tells us that God has a plan. And if God has a plan, then not only did he have a plan for Mary and Joseph, Adam and Eve, but he also has a plan for you. And the problem with most, I've been a pastor now 20 plus years, and being a pastor 20 years, probably the number one question I get asked as a pastor is, Cricket, what is God's plan for my life? Or Cricket, what is God's will for my life? Because people don't have a problem understanding that God has one. A lot of times people have a problem figuring out exactly what it is. And so it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. Before we get into where I'm going to go, I'll just break this down real quickly. 
In Romans 12, 2, it says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is the, that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. There is a will of God at work in your life. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans of good, not of evil. Plans to give you a future. Plans to give you a hope. God is very serious, just like he was very serious about the plan to get Jesus here. God's very serious about the plan of God for your life. Now, you can live your whole life the way you want to live it and never move into the plan of God or the will of God for your life. But you're just not going to be fulfilled because you were made for specific purpose. Now, in this story, the Bible says this. I love it that not only do we have to depend on the plan of God for our life, but Jesus had to live the will of God for his life. Now, stay with me. We are going to go somewhere. The Bible here says that when Jesus was born, all the things had to happen, 365 different prophetic prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ had to come about before he could be born. just shows how God's plan is so intricate and so at work in place before he could show up there. So it, 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 it had to be so many things come into play. But for that to take place means that there was a plan at work. What I love about God's plan is a lot of people think it's so difficult they don't understand. I'm going to break it down for you. There are three plans of God at work in your life at all times. Here it says in Romans chapter 12 too, it says the good, the perfect, and the acceptable. Breaks it down into three ways right there. But the, to make it a little bit more understandable, we, you can need to understand this. There is a sovereign will of God at work at all times. What that means is this. There are some things that God has decided that are going to take place that whether you and me try to stop it or not, it's going to happen because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is in control of it all. As a matter of fact, he controls the universe. The Bible says he holds the hand, the world, I mean, the, holds together the world by the word of, of his mouth. And so when he speaks, everything in our world moves, works, happens, stays together. It says our worlds are framed by his word. Now, God is sovereign. And when God makes up his mind that something's going to happen, you need to know it's going to happen. Now, the thing about that is this. There are times that we may not agree with the sovereign will of God. For example, one of the sovereign wills of God was Jesus was going to be born. And when you read the story there between the scriptures we read, Herod knew that God said that the king was going to be born. And so Herod tried to stop the will of God at work in the king being born. I want you to know something. You can't stop the will of God. The sovereign will of God is at work all the time. Now, the problem with it is the will of God is sovereign, but it's not the most powerful thing on this planet. The most powerful thing on this planet is not the will of God. The most powerful thing on this planet is your will. Because if you choose not to be a part of the will of God, God can't do anything about that. What will happen is God created you with a purpose and a plan. And if you choose not to live it, if you use your will to go against the will of God, what well, God's will will still come about. It will just come about through someone else. You will be the one that miss out. 
But just like they said in Acts, if it's a God thing, it can't be stopped. There is a sovereign will of God. God has made His mind up about things, and He has put them in His Word. One of the things He said was Jesus was going to come. Another thing He put in there, Jesus is going to come again. And it doesn't matter how bad I want it to stop, I can't stop it. No matter how bad I pray, don't come back Jesus out. Jesus is coming back again. That's why the Bible says, church, you better be ready. He is coming back. That is the sovereign will of God. There are sovereign wills of God at work in your life all the time. Whether you are working with them or you're working against them, there is, number one, the sovereign will of God. Now, secondly, the will of God at work in our lives is called the moral will of God. There is a moral will of God. In other words, that is God's rules and regulations for the way we live. And when you say the word rules, we think, oh, that's a bad thing. No, it's kind of like guidelines. If you want to, what he uses, this, the, the moral will of God is, when you read through the scripture, the way he tells you to live is his will for your life. Because he's never out to take joy out of your life. What he's wanting to do is align you to where you can be fulfilled. So when you choose to live the moral will of God, what it does is you live the way Jesus told us to live, live the way that the Bible tells us to live. What it does, the moral will of God positions you at that point into the sovereign will of God. See, the sovereign will of God I love because the sovereign will of God, God has chosen in His Word to say it like this, that He has chosen to, for the sovereign will of God to come about on this earth. It's going to come about through us. In other words, we get to be a part of what God's doing on this earth. The Christmas story is the best way to describe it. Because, see, God could have created Jesus just the way He created Adam. As a matter of fact, He's called the second Adam. God could have reached into the dirt and formed it up and breathed into it and did it all on His own, but God didn't do that way. God chose to find a girl that had made the choice to live morally, live the way the God had asked her to live, to position herself into a place that God at that point when the sovereign will was going to be released, He looked down and He found Mary. And the Bible says, the angel said, Mary, God, you have found favor in God's sight. God, God sees how you've been living and God, God's pleased with who you are and the way that you've been living. The moral will of God that you've chosen to follow has positioned you now to put you into a place of being in the sovereign, being able to be used in the sovereign will of God. God wants to use you to do such amazing things that when the world looks back at your time here, people will be in awe or aghast that no way you could have done that on your own except by the Holy Spirit being upon your life and God using you in a mighty way. That's exactly what the Bible says Mary did. The Bible says that Mary chose to live the way God had asked her to live and the Holy Spirit kept on her life and she was able to produce something out of her life that there was no way possible that she should have been able to produce. The moral will brings you into the sovereign will. And when you choose to live the moral will, it positions you to be in the sovereign will, a place where God now can use you to do what He's already decided to happen. As a matter of fact, it, then it moves you into the personal will. Because, see, God's got a corporate will. He's got a, he's got a will for the earth. He's got a will for each city, each country. He's got a, a will for this church. He's got a will for each family. But then he's got a will specifically for you. And they all work together in, in, at the same time, working together, causing about the global will of God to come about. So what happens is this. When, when I understand that there is a will that God has, he's made up his mind about some things. 
And if I will live the way that God's asked me to live more in His moral will, it positions me to be able to be used in His sovereign will, which then becomes His personal will for my life. The Bible says that there's a book in heaven that every one of those uh, every one of the pages in that book are written. Every one of my days are written on a page in that book. God has already written my story out. He has a will, a destiny, and a plan for me. And see, it becomes so intricate and personal that just like with Mary, she longed to be married. She longed to be a mother. She had probably had no idea that one day there were going to be different religions around this world that even worship her as a deity simply by her choosing to live the moral will of God, which positioned her into the sovereign will of God, which then unfolded into the personal will of God. And she was completely fulfilled. Completely happy. Got every one of her wildest dreams, every one of her greatest desires came about. And even beyond. People look back through history. Songs have been written about Mother Mary. Religions worship and pray to Mother Mary. Not because Mother Mary was a deity. But it was because she made a choice. I'm going to live the will of God for my life. Saying that to say this. God needs people to make those choices. God needs people to say that. God, I want to, I want to live your... I want you to be able to... I want to please you with the way I live. So that you can use me to bring about what you sent me here to do. So that I can be something that is of value to you. When you read that story, the Bible says the, the wise men, they brought to Jesus three gifts. And like I said, they have spiritual connotations. Uh, earthly king, deity king, and the death that he was going to go through. Now, I'm going to bring out the part. As soon as the kings left, the enemy went at work to try to kill Jesus. And so not only were those gifts meaningful... But they were desperately needed. We had a young couple that couldn't afford to pay enough to get a room. They were going to stay at an inn and they couldn't bribe somebody out. They couldn't outpay somebody out. They couldn't... You know, because I've never met a business owner that bottom line dollar wouldn't move things around. I figure, this is in my mind and I'm preaching so I get to say it, I figure if Joseph would have had enough gold in his pocket that night that innkeeper would have gave up his room but he didn't he took what he was given because I don't believe he had the means but see the enemy was after the king of kings that had been born and so he sent a king Herod and they sent soldiers into the city to kill the baby Jesus and what would Mary and Joseph been able to do had they have not had three wise men come into the room and lay down things at their feet that would be able to pay for a journey to Egypt and provide shelter and food while they were in a foreign country unable to work their credit because it says Jesus said go I mean God the angel told him to go there and wait there was time involved in this I love the fact that what God asked those men to give they meant something spiritually but what I love is it was something that Jesus needed to use for God to accomplish the will of God for me and you to be able to get back to God God needed somebody to give what they had 
beyond something spiritually meaningful, but something that God could use. And so today I'm going to jump into an odd thought pattern with you because I believe this. I believe that you and I have some things that God, yes, they mean something. But not only do they mean something, but me and you have something that God desperately wants to use. And if we don't give these things to God, I'm going to say, I will go as far to say this, that the will of God will be affected on this earth. He will have to go another way. Or He would have to use someone else. And so over the next three services, we're going to bring up three different things. We're going to go after one today. And I want you to know something though. Each one of these gifts that we have, if you give them to God, He will cherish them. If you keep them to yourself, they will bring you no value. There was a story, Jennifer sent it to me the other day about a young boy whose grandfather called and said, hey, I want you to come over to the house. I want to give you a gift. And the Bible, um, and the story said that the young boy went over to his grandfather's house, came in the house, and he says, oh, Grandpa, what, you got a gift for you. He said, you got a gift. And the grandfather reached down and took a watch off of his arm. He said, yes, sir, I've been waiting for all these years for you to finally get old enough for me to be able to give you this gift. He said, my father gave it to me and his father gave it to him. And this gift of this watch has been given to us year after year, I mean, generation after generation, and it's the most valuable gift I can give you, son. And the grandson got so excited, he took the watch and he said, well, what's it worth? He says, I don't know. Why don't you take it and go find out? So the little boy ran out and went to the first pawn shop he could find, walked into the pawn shop and laid it on the counter. Said, could you tell me what you would give me for this? And the little boy picked up the watch and He looked at it and saw the dings and the scratches and saw the wear and the tear and saw the issues that time had put on this watch. And he put it back on the counter and said, all right, I'll give you $5. And oh, the little boy's heart just sunk. He said, what? I spent more gas on my car getting here. Then he grabbed the watch back off, went back to his grandfather and walked in the house all upset and all bothered and laid the watch on the table and said, Grandpa, I took this and they told me that this watch is useless. There's no value in this thing. They gave me five, they said they would give me five dollars for it. And I'll spend that much gas going back to get that five dollars. This is not worth anything. And the grandfather said, hang on, hold on just for a moment. Why don't where'd you go to take this watch? He said, we took it to the pawn shop. He said, why don't you do me a favor before you get upset? Why don't you take this watch and go down to the museum? So the little boy took his watch, went down and found the caretaker of the museum, and walked in and said, could you tell me the value of this watch? They went back to the caretaker's office and got on the computer and typed a few things and pulled up a few different sites and the man said, can I look at it again? He took it and looked over, turned it around, looked at it again, saw the same wear and tear, saw the same scratches and dings, saw the same damage that time itself had put on it. He laid it on the table and said, I'll give you a million dollars for it right now. And the little boy grabbed his watch and said, no way. Took off running back to his grandpa's house. Ran in and said, Grandpa, you, you gave me a million dollar watch. And he said, you need to remember this, son. Not everybody values things the same. And so if you can keep what you have 
in the hands of those that value it. You'll never lack for anything in your life. No matter what shape you come in. I want to jump into this story in John chapter 4. I've heard this story preached, and I've got to be honest with you, this is probably the greatest story to me over the years. I have lots of favorite stories. You've heard me say, this is one of my favorite stories. This truly has become my favorite story in the entire Bible. It kicks off into a place, and it says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, heard that Jesus made... Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, it says, he left, it says, through Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again unto Galilee. Now I want you, everybody to, um, mentally, if you're not an underliner in your mind, understand that he said he was leaving to go to Galilee. It says he departed to go to Galilee. I want to draw this out real clear as quick as I can. Jesus only had a certain amount of days on this earth. Time was very sensitive to Jesus. Jesus is always aware of timing going on around him. When you read the story and of the stories in Jesus, as a matter of fact, the very first miracle that Jesus performed, Jesus mentions the understanding of time. See, Jesus, the Bible says, the Bible says that Jesus found himself in the scripture. So he knew there was an expiration date on the will of God for his life on this planet. There was going to be a day that he was going to die. And so he knew for me to accomplish, because he had to accomplish a whole lot in a little bit of time. And he was very aware of the timing because on the first miracle, this is what he said. He said, woman, don't you know, and any time a man speaks that way to his mother, he's obviously in a lot of stress or he's very stupid. And I choose to refuse, believe Jesus was stupid. So obviously, he was under the restraint of time. And so he's a woman, don't you know, it's not my time yet. Jesus was very aware of time. He knew he had a certain amount of time to do what God had put him on this earth to do. And what God had put him on this earth to do was such a big, powerful, meaningful destiny that if he didn't constantly keep himself aware of time, I believe he could have lost track of time. And I believe he could have missed some of the things that God had destined him to do. Time was very aware in Jesus' life. He speaks about it. He talks about it. And here we find him saying that he's leaving this situation and going to Galilee. But for some reason, as you read, let's read on that. It says this. It says, go to Galilee. And he needed to go through Samaria. One translation said this. He stopped them and said, I must go to Samaria. Jesus was very conscious of time. I don't believe he wasted a single second, a single minute of the 33 years plus days and months he had on this earth. I don't believe there was a single one of them wasted because he knew how important what God had put him here to do. But the Bible says he was made plans to go to Galilee, but something took place in his life that made him change and go another way. The other ones did not understand it. They did not understand why he would have must go through Samaria, but something was so important to happen in Samaria that Jesus said, I must in the King James go. You need to understand something. For Jesus to say, I must, must be pretty important. For him to make a, he didn't say I want to, it would be cool if I did. Hey guys, let's swing by. Or he said, I must. There was something in Samaria that was of such great value to him that he said, it is a necessity that I quit heading this direction, but I take a detour and go through here. I don't know if you've ever um, 
been in the situation I found myself in in a couple weeks. It's been years since I personally did this. But I was driving in my car back to Alabama and um, I was on the phone for about an hour and 45 minutes. One phone call. All right, but the way I drive in my car, my car's... My, um, phone goes through my Bluetooth in the car. And so when I'm on the phone, the other normal alerts and soundings in the car don't go off. And I wasn't paying attention and got going. And we have a a thing in our car that at 50 miles, it starts letting you know you need to get gas if you're almost out of gas. But I was on the phone for an hour and about 20 minutes. And I was on the phone when the car quit going forward. And I was a long way from a gas station. I told you a story about Jennifer. That's usually her. I ain't run out of gas in probably 25 years. But I was on the phone, and I did not realize because I, where I was going that the alarms weren't going off. The you know, say I wasn't paying attention to my surroundings. I was doing other things, so I ran out of gas. I don't know about you guys, but it. Um, I found myself missing, not paying, not taking, not paying attention, and losing track of the direction to things I was going in. I don't know if uh, see if I would have just stopped and got what I needed six miles earlier because it was six miles. I had to walk about a mile and a half, had to pay a guy $25 to drive me six miles to the gas station, bring me back, put it in the car. It was a great time. We ended up, we really, me and him became good friends. I tell him I'm going to stop by by on another day. But if I would have just stopped to get what I needed, I would have been able to get as far as I was supposed to go. Come on, preach it. What I'm saying is this, I believe this stop in Jesus' life was so important that he had to go through. If I would have just turned off the road in just a couple hundred feet to get to a gas station, it would have changed the, the, the pace of my journey. And this is what I see in this story. I see there was something in Samaria of such value, just like with me driving my car, putting gas in it, how important gas is to my car. There was something here that Jesus knew I got to get if I'm going to go where I got to go. And the Bible says that he went to Samaria. Now, if you read this, it's amazing what the Scripture says. It says this, He left Judea and departed to Gal- again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he, he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychlor, however you want to pronounce it, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey. Very interesting statement there. It says he was weary from his journey. I've never seen another place where Jesus got tired. As a matter of fact, you can see Jesus was a tough man just by reading and keeping the schedule that he kept. As a matter of fact, the last three days that he lived, he was up late one night with his disciples having a late dinner. Then the next day he got up and they went into the city. Then they went into the garden. And when his disciples were passing out sleeping, they couldn't stay up anymore. Jesus stayed up all night. And he didn't just stay up all night. He fought and he wore in the spirit to the point of great stress dropping drops of blood. And then he still was still awake when they came and arrested him in the early hours of the morning. Stayed awake all the next day and then hung on the car. This dude was not a wimp. So when you see anywhere in the scripture that Jesus was tired, there obviously must have been some effort put out or put into whatever he was doing. And so that tells me this. This journey was not an easy journey. Like me pulling off the highway to get gas would have been an easy thing to do. Jesus had to obviously go way out of his way and put a lot of energy. I don't know if it was an all uphill climb or what but whatever this journey this detour that he was willing to take had enough energy to be put out in him it wore him out that's a big statement so that tells me this whatever was there was worth him giving it everything he had 
him giving it the most important thing he had on this planet at the time, which was time. He went out of his way to, to, took time out to get to this place. So what was there? I've heard it preached over years that, you know, there was somebody that needed to be saved. There was a lady that needed to give her heart to the Lord, and I'm, I'm here to tell you I don't believe that. The story is said here, and for the sake of time, I'm going to speed this up. Bible says when he got there, and if you read it, it says, when he got there, it says, he sat down by the well and waited. Let me bring back up the, option, the thing of time again. Jesus didn't waste time. But see, we've even been taught that because most of our lives we've been taught this. God's never too late, and he's never too early. He's always what? Right on time. This story blows that out of the water. Because this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus got to the well early and he sat down and waited. Could it be one of the reasons why we don't see God moving where we want him to see moving? Is because we're not waiting on him. He's waiting on us to get where we need to be and do what we needed to do. He, he, he's, the Bible says he got to the well and he sat down and he waited. It says in the sixth hour of the day, says the woman from the well, or the woman, a Samaritan woman came to the well. And I'm going to take you through this story real quick because I want to get this one point into you. The Bible says that when she came up, Jesus said, will you give me a drink of water? And she instantly took the prejudice role. What do you mean give me a drink of water? I'm a Jew and you're a Samaritan. That was one of the most prejudiced issues in, this, in society at that time, Jews and Samaritans. And so she wanted to bring it to a social issue. How dare you ask me that? I want you to know something. I don't care what... The enemy's tried to convince you that God can't step across prejudice and racial lines. Jesus proved in this story. It's not about race, creed, color. It's not about God wants, God will use anybody that will allow him to use them. I love that. I love that. But then it says, it says, she says, woman, will you give me a drink? And she says this. She says, you don't have a bucket now, this is big because for him to get a drink and the racial issues going on there, he would have surely, he got there early, he had time to stop in a store and pick up a bucket, but he, didn't, he wasn't worried about drinking after her. As a matter of fact, it's the only place in the Bible that um, I see Jesus ever asked anybody for a drink. He asked her, he said this, he says, hey, will you help me with something? I have a need. Now, this is big to me. What is it Jesus needs? He can turn water into wine. The devil knew he could turn rocks into bread. This conversation was not about water. But I believe he brought up the idea of water because they were sitting at a well and it would be something that she could relate into. He said, woman, will you give me a drink? In other words, you've got something and you've got something that you're, you've got an ability to get it and I need you to give it to me. And as the story goes on down, you say, well, Cricket, she needed to get saved. No, I don't believe that. I believe this girl was a church girl. The Bible says she got there at 6 o'clock in the day. And when she got there, a lot of people preach this, that she didn't get there in the morning like most women do because when most women get, they, they get up, they would go to the well first thing in the morning at daylight and in the sea they would get their water and they would do their gossip things around the well and then they would go live their life. And some people preach that she got there because at 6, because at, which is noon, she got there because she was worried about what other people thought the way she'd be living 
believe, and I'm here to tell you that I don't believe that's what it is. What I see in the scriptures is a lady that's been married five times. A lady in those days that would have been married five times, I don't figure she lived with her boyfriend by herself. I figure there were several little children and little hands and mouths to feed. I see this. Me and my wife, I've told you this, me and my wife have three daughters. And it takes me and my wife full time, full energy, getting up an hour and a half before my girls get out of bed to get everything ready to get them out the door on time, to get them to school on time. And a lot of days together, both of us doing it, we still miss it. What I see in this story is not a lady that was ashamed of what she'd been doing. I see a lady that I believe was living life as best she could. She had a house full of kids, had a you know a guy that wasn't pitching in a whole lot, and she was doing everything she could do to keep life going forward. She was a single mom trying to keep life together because I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of responsibility on my plate. I walked in, where is Jeremy? There he is right up there. Jeremy caught me in Walmart last Saturday night. I went. We were doing a lot of stuff here. I went hunting with Roger. I killed a deer. We had to run out and skin the deer. And then I needed to get turkey fryers and all that for thing. So I walk in Walmart and I run into Jeremy. And I got me. I was under the stress of what had to get done at that point. I did not even see the big old chunk of meat hanging off my leg and the bloods from here up and my hair. And I had hair and meat in my hair. I walk in there. Jeremy's like, "What? You walked in here like that?" I I was under. I never even thought about it. I mean, I got to get this out. This is what I see this lady doing. I see her having to get up and try to make life work. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I don't believe Jesus came there to get a girl saved because the Bible says this, when Jesus was talking to her, she said this, obviously you're a prophet, so I can tell that you're a prophet. Answer me this, the Samaritans, we worship on the mountain. The Jews, they worship in the synagogue. Which one is it? So this tells me this, that she was a church girl. She'd been to church and she'd worshipped on the mountains. This is not a lady that did not know how to connect with God. This is not a lady that did not, this was a lady that was doing everything she could do to get through the day that she was going through, but she'd been through so many things that maybe she had a little bit more baggage than somebody else did that could get there at six that morning, but she was doing life the best she could, and I believe she knew who God was because she knew where and how to worship. So I see a church girl. Well, well, maybe she just come from a poor family. No, she talked about her forefather, Jacob, who owned the well. It was Jacob's well. So she came from a good family. It wasn't like they came from the other side of the tracks. So what did Jesus come here to get that he desperately was willing to change his time clock? What did he come to get that he was desperately willing to change his schedule? That he was willing to get there early and waste time? Because I tell you, if you make me wait, my mind starts telling me, you're wasting time, Cricket. You're wasting my personality. I don't do good with wasting time. And so I can't imagine Jesus' personality doing that. I expect everybody to wait on me, but I don't expect me to wait on anybody. I'm sure that's, it was a lot of that thing going on there. But what he was saying there is that he was willing to waste time because she had something that he needed. And he said, will you give me a drink? I believe she was doing everything she could do. I believe she was living every way she could live. She knew who God was. She'd been to worship experiences. But she was still empty. So what would make this girl empty? She'd been in the presence of God to be filled up. She'd worshipped. She knew, had a history of where they came from because she knew it was the well and who dug it and who gave it and why they gave it. She, she knew this stuff, yet she was living life on empty because she went to a well trying to get something to fill her up that Jesus said, you're constantly having to come back to this well. He said, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. She said, because he said, you're right. You've been married five times and you're living with the guy now. A lot of preachers say he revealed her sin. Jesus has never done that to anybody that I know. Jesus has never put me out 
or threw me under the bus. Jesus has never positioned me to look like a failure. As a matter of fact, anytime I ever let Jesus get involved, He took me from the tail and made me the head. He took my circumstance and fixed it to where I look better than what I should look. Jesus has never left anybody or hung anybody out to dry. Jesus has never put you in a spot to make people think bad about you. That's not what happened here. I believe this. I believe Jesus said, Listen, you've got something I need. You've been married five times. And you're living with a guy now. That doesn't sound like anything me and you would need. But when you understand what God's Jesus came here to do, you understand that He went to Samaria not to get a little girl saved, but He went to Samaria to encounter somebody that's willing to give Him something that He would use to change the world. The Bible says that She said, you're not married. He said, you're not. And she goes, I know. Obviously, you're a prophet because you know my story. He wasn't gossiping. He wasn't convicting. He wasn't condemning. Well, he was bringing out the fact and the awareness. That beautiful young lady, you're important enough to me to go out of my way, give up the little bit, some of the time that I have here on this planet because what the devil has done in your life He's not done in mine. And so I need to have an encounter with you because you got something I need and I've got something you need. And if me and you will exchange gifts here, both of us will have what we need to accomplish the will of God for our lives. You say, well, Cricket, what are you talking about? If you read in Revelations chapter 12, this is what the Bible says. In Revelations chapter 12, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before before our God day and night has, has been cast down. Now what he's saying here is that the devil... It's accuser of the brethren. And night and day the devil's been going before the Lord trying to accuse you and getting God to walk away from you. Getting God to give up on you. Getting God to say, you know, there's no hope for you. But then this is what the Bible says. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. I tell you what, I'm so thankful that Jesus was born on Christmas because what God sent down here was the blood of the Lamb that we need to destroy the works of the devil. But check this out. It says, and... By the word of their testimony. And by, they did not love their own lives unto death. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying this. I believe Jesus went to Samaria because this woman had five marriages, five divorces, and she was living with a man that she was not married to. And Jesus needed somebody that had messed up. Jesus needed somebody that had been disappointed. Jesus needed somebody that had been broken. You know, when you look into reasons why people divorce, there's all different kinds of reasons. But I've never seen people be able to go through a divorce and not come out broken. You know, I don't know 
I know this, for her to marry the first guy, when she saw him, I'm sure, the first time, she thought, look at my future. I can see a future with him. I can see a dream. I she began to get a picture and a dream of what life could be. But something happened after they were married. I don't know if he cheated on her and broke her heart. I don't know if he abused her physically, verbally, mentally. I don't know if he lost passion for her. I, I know this, it was not... I don't believe it was all her. I don't believe she was the one wearing the scarlet dress. I don't believe because she wanted to be married bad enough, she's willing to walk into five of them, even though there were probably warning signs that all five were bad, because all five ended up breaking her all the way through. But I believe that first marriage that she went into, she went into with full of hope and full of dreams and with possibilities of what my life can be. But something took place in that marriage, whether it was him or whether it was just life or whether it was stress or whether it was situations, and he divorced her and he left her broken and he left her hurt and he left her abused and he left her alone desperately at that point trying to crawl through life and make it on her own. So she found maybe another door, another hope that would change this situation and she got into another marriage and it obviously ended up worse than the first one because why else would you? She would have, I believe she would have stuck out a second one if it was that because then what other option did she have? But it seemed like they kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Her situations became getting better. I don't know if she was abused. I don't know know if they if they would cheat her I don't know but I know this there was great distrust put into her heart there was great disappointment there was great brokenness they say this there's no pain like a divorce it's a death that you have to relive every day I believe her life got to be so heavy from the scars of her just trying to live I believe her life got so tough that she was at this point willing to just move into a house with the man that was just going to use her for what he wanted out of it no more. She was going to get nothing out of it in return except maybe a roof over her head. And I see a person that Jesus found that was probably in one of the worst situations you could be in. Him willing to go out of his way because Jesus needed... The greatest pain, he needed the greatest hurt, he needed the greatest disappointment, he needed the greatest bitterness. He needed, because see, in that scripture in Revelations, it says that they're going to destroy the works of the devil with three things. One, the blood of the Lamb. He had it. Not loving his own life unto death, he had it. The only thing that Jesus needed to destroy the works of the devil in his life is he needed a testimony. But see, Jesus didn't have a testimony. Jesus had never messed up. He had never failed. He had never broken the rules. He had never hurt. He had never done that. So he had to find somebody with a powerful enough mistake, with a great enough disappointment, with a strong enough pain that when he could come and he could ask anybody for anything, his disciples would have given him anything. He needed to find somebody that had such a brokenness that he could take it if they would give it. And he would use it as something that he could never get on his own, but he would be willing to give her something, the Bible says, that she would never thirst again. And I'm so thankful this girl chose to give it. What's a gift you can give Jesus this year? Not that he wants, but that he needs. Your greatest disappointment, your greatest brokenness, your greatest pain, your greatest disappointment, your greatest abuse, whatever 
the enemy has tried to position you with in your life, this is the fact. If you can give your brokenness to God, God can put something on the inside of you. Can you imagine the shame she had when he said, go get your husband? She said, I don't have one. I'm living with the guy. I mean, when she said, you're living with the guy. Can you imagine the shame? A lot of us love to hold on to our shame. Because we think if we hold on to it, nobody can see it. If we can hold on to it, nobody can use it. we got things on the inside of us that are really just keeping us getting up and living life day to day instead of us realizing the reason why God would even allow it in the first place is because God needed it to accomplish His will in your life. And you were never to keep a hold of it on your own. He came so that you could give it to Him. If you can give Him the greatest pain, and I'm here to tell you, I've been a Christian for a long time. There are things in my life that I've held on to, even though I was a Christian walking with the Lord, just like I believe this was a church girl, that I was too hurt or too broken or too ashamed of for me to ever say, God, all right, you really want this too? You've already done all this for me, but you really want this too? And for me to reach down on the inside of me and pull out the worst thing that has ever happened to me and me give it to him but that's what he needs because if you can give him your greatest brokenness he will give you a testimony and Jesus needed a testimony the Bible says to destroy the works of the devil so what he needed he didn't have what he still needs he don't have he may have your heart but if he can't have your failure he needs it to build a testimony so that he can destroy the works of the devil. There are so many of us that try to hold on to this thing or try to just live past it or get through it or just, just go, you know, we, well, he's forgiven me, let's go. It's more than being forgiven for it. It's giving it back to him. And when you can give it back to him, he turns it into something that's living. He said, I will put on the inside of you a river of living water. This place on the inside of us that is so full of death, this place that is so full of regret, this place that is so full of pain, if you can get it, out and give it to him he will make what was destroying you live on the inside of you and you will never ever be the same this is what the Bible says I'm done he needs your greatest brokenness because of three things if you don't give them to him this is what will happen if you don't give him that brokenness it'll be a place in your life you'll never be able to worship him in she couldn't worship at the well She couldn't worship in the city. She had to go to the mountain. She had to move to a different place that was above where she was living. And he came and said, give me this where you're living. Because he said, there will come a day when it don't matter where you worship. You'll worship him in spirit and in truth. You'll quit having to hide this thing. You'll quit trying to, having to pretend this thing's not there. You quit pretending that you weren't that. You give it to him. So if you don't, you'll never be able to worship in that place in your own life. You'll come to the altar and the enemy, you'll begin to worship and he's the accuser of the brethren. And the minute you get it, start moving into worship, he'll throw that into your head, throw that into your mind and you'll find yourself drawing back because you can't worship God in an area of your life that you haven't given him. Number two, when you don't give it to God, God can't move in defense for you in that situation. So what everyone said about you is true until you give that place to God. And when you give that place to God, 
you don't got to defend yourself anymore. He will show them that you're not that anymore. He will show us. The Bible says this, every tongue that rises against you will be shown to be in the wrong. If you can't give that part to God, you'll spend your life defending that part. If you'll give that part to God, God will spend His time defending you. He will prove that He doesn't fail. Number three, it will keep God from moving in your life through ministry. If you read through the story on down, this is what happened. He never exchanged physical water. He said, give me water. That was the conversation starter. He was after the brokenness. And when he got the brokenness, he never got the water because he wasn't there for the water. He was there for the brokenness. And the Bible said this, she got up and she went into the city and she told all those in the city of the things that he had done. And the Bible says the whole city came out to hear and be healed by Jesus. Her ministry began to flow when she was willing to let the worst part of her life go. What can you give God this year? Well, I believe the first gift He wants from you is your greatest mistake, your greatest regret, your greatest disappointment, your greatest brokenness, the greatest abuse that you've been through, the greatest situation that you've been in. And you say, well, Cricket, how do I give it to him? We're going to do it representation like this. Almost in every seat today was a gift tag card. Everyone should have one within arm's distance. If you don't, you can raise your hand. Our ushers will get it to you. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to embarrass anybody because I don't want to know you're seeing. i got to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't want to know what you got going on in your life. I don't want to know what somebody's done to you. I don't want to know what mistakes you made. I don't want to know any of that. But I want you to physically. In just a minute, we're going to play a video. When this video comes, I want you to decide I'm going to be a wise man. I'm going to do what it takes to be wise. And today, the wise man would have given the gift. We're going to give it in representation of frankincense. Because this is something only God can do. Only God can take a mistake, shame, brokenness, and pain and turn it into a testimony. But then He will take what you gave Him and He will turn it into a weapon. And He will destroy the works of the devil in your family, in your marriage, in your life, in your health, in every situation. So whether you write it physically or you write it mentally, ceremonially, during this next video, I want you to think and take hold of the greatest mistake, brokenness, pain, hurt that you've had on the inside of you that you've not known how to let go. You've not known how to get past. You've not known how to get healed. Or you've not known how to get through. And I want to see you, either mentally or physically, put it on this gift card. Because you're about to give this to the Lord. And when you walk out of this room, you need to understand we're not going to be Indian givers. I'm going to give this to God because I want to give Him something this year that He needs and not something that I think He would like. He desperately needs your brokenness. And what we're going to do is at the end of this video, you think, you watch, you see, you decide what it is you can give 
And then what we're going to do is we're going to play a song that we played just before. And you're going to come and you're going to exchange it for a gift that He's given you. In these boxes are one of the three what I believe represented gifts there in the Bible. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be giving everyone that comes a gift that wants the gift. But you're going to have to be willing to give a gift to get a gift. Jesus needs your brokenness. Today we have represented frankincense. And it's an oil. And the reason why we took the frankincense oil is because of this scripture. This is a gift exchange. It says the Spirit in Isaiah 61 says, For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, and to open and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2 says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This year is going to be different in your life than any other year you've ever been through. It says, And the day of vengeance of our God, He will begin to move on your behalf and fight for your battle. It says this, To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. See, he's a, he's a, he's a gift exchanger. A lot of us like to take his gift and run. Right? Thank you for saving me. I'm gone. We like to give a gift. But no, he's a gift exchanger. He wants you to give something so he can give something. Salvation happened that way. I give you my life. He gives you salvation. And so he's always a gift exchanger. And here he said this, I want to take the parts of your life that have been burnt up to ashes and I want to give you beauty. And this is what it says, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called. In other words, he's about to change your identity. The minute he gives this to you, we've always taught this word. I mean, many times people preach this story about this woman at the well as, you know, the woman through divorces and shacking up and she got a bad reputation. Maybe you've had a bad reputation. Let me tell you how to get rid of that reputation. Give God that pain. Give God that mistake. Give God that failure. Give God that brokenness. And he say this, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and that he may be glorified. If you can give what you wouldn't think God would ever want, but he's desperately in need of, he will give you the oil of joy for gladness. And I'm here to tell you, everything in your life will begin to change. She went from being the worst wife you could ever imagine to being the city's greatest evangelist they had ever seen. Only a testimony does that.